once said, there ain't nothing minor about the minor prophets. This study we've done together on the one-chapter books of the Bible to this point has been to emphasize, at least in part, that there ain't nothing minor about them. And the two we've looked at so far have been Jude and Philemon. But our study tonight takes us to the Old Testament and the only one-chapter book found there, and that is one of the minor prophets, and that's Obadiah. As the kids that are, are part of, of BK520 know, Obadiah is the fourth. It's when we put our hand on that steering wheel for BK520, we say, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, right there, the fourth of the minor prophets. And that's where we're going to look right now. I hope you're ready. Let's not delay. Let's get right into this thing. Obadiah, don't even have to say chapter one. Obadiah, verse one. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and the messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up. Let us rise against her for battle. This guy named Obadiah. There are approximately a baker's dozen worth of Obadiahs in the Bible. And we can only guess at which one of those, if any of those, maybe it's one not mentioned, wrote this book, had this vision that we call Obadiah. And I think that's kind of cool that we don't know. Because in reality, it doesn't really matter. He doesn't really matter. You see, Obadiah shows up in chapter 1, verse 1, but Obadiah is not mentioned for the whole rest of this book. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 7. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God. Esther, chapter 4. Mordecai makes it very clear to Esther, if you keep silent, relief and deliverance for the Jews will come from another place. We think we matter. We think we're necessary to the Lord. We are, as Paul says, nothing. We are merely vessels, uh, messengers. And that's all Obadiah is. Again, in verse 1, it isn't about him. It's about what the Lord God says and what the Lord God shows. Concerning whom? Concerning Edom. Edom, the Edomites are descendants, and their great-great-great-great-great-great-great-granddad is a biblical figure we know as Esau. The word Edom means red. Some believe that they get their name from that great-great-great-great-great-great-great-granddad, Esau, who was red-haired, red in complexion. Others think they get it 
from the red stew that he sold his birthright in order to get. A tragic moment in the history of this people. We're not sure. Our BK520 kids, they know that we have this song from the bottom to the top that talks about the geography of the Holy Land. And they know that you have Dead Sea way down here on the bottom. And you got Judea way down here on the bottom. But if you go even south of that to southwest Jordan in today's geography, south of that is where you would have found the Edomite people. They're there. And they are the subjects of the Lord's vision. And they're in big trouble. Because the Lord has seen what they have done. One commentator says there are more Bible passages pronouncing judgment on the Edomites than on any other nation. Let's continue and read verses 2 through 4. Behold, I will make you small among the nations, the Lord continues, and you shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, Who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. One of the greatest movies of all time is Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. You can fight me about it afterwards if you want to. But anyway, near the end of that movie, the climactic event, they kind of, they ride up on their horses to this, this almost like temple set in the stone. I don't know if you remember that. They kind of go through, through this narrow, rocky corridor to this, this temple area that's embedded really in the rock. That place, that filming location was Petra, Jordan. And it is a perfect example of how the Edomite people lived and where they lived. Their, 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 their dwelling places were, were in caves and, and in stone, embedded in there. And so you can see why the Lord says of their dwellings that they live in the clefts of the rock, verse 3. But the problem is, as we also see in verse 3, the pride of of your heart has deceived you. The pride of your heart has deceived you. Oh, the things we say in our hearts. You got a pen, I want you you to write this down. This is really good stuff. This is the kind of thing that I'm giving my, my other fellow preachers preaching material right here. So write it down. Deuteronomy 717, 817, 9-4, 15-9, and 29-19. One more time. Here we go. 7-17-8-17-9-4-15-9-29-19. Deuteronomy, all those verses are about the things we say in our hearts. They're warnings against the things we might say. 7-17 is... God looking at them and knowing what's going to happen, how they're going to be afraid. They're going to say in their hearts, oh, these people that we're going to go into Canaan, they're mightier than us. How are we ever going to defeat them? In their hearts, they say those things. 8.17, beware, you say in your heart, my, my, my power 
and my might has gotten us this land. Nine, four, don't say in your hearts it's because of your righteousness that you've been given this land. Are you listening to the themes? The things we say in our hearts, fear, pride, self-righteousness. The other two we mentioned have to do with selfishness. And, and one saying, I'm safe, even though I'm going to continue in the stubbornness of my heart. God's grace has got it, even though I'm going to keep on doing what I want to do. You know, that kind of warning was way back in Deuteronomy. And it's the same kind of thing that got the Edomites. Beware your self-dialogue, the things you say that others never hear. God hears, and they mold and shape you into perhaps the vilest villain. I hear there's a movie called Avatar that a lot of people have watched. And in that, there are these flying beasts that they tame and use to hunt. And if you've ever seen that movie, they're like the, the biggest of the flying beasts is like, I'm colorblind, so I'm doing my best here, folks. It's like a reddish, yellowish, orangish big beast way up in the air, right? And the main character, Jake Sully, in order to kind of prove his awesomeness to the tribe, he determines he's going to go catch that sucker that nobody's ever caught. And do you remember, do you remember what his approach is and what he thinks about, the way he figures out how to do it? This is, a, this is a, a predator that feared no one, nothing, was way up in the sky. And Sully said, that's the whole point. That predator looks down on everything and everyone and never looks up. That's how I'm going to get him. And that's what Sully does, is from above the beast, jumps down and gets him. Can you see that in verses 2 through 4, especially look in verse 4 of our text? Do you see that? This is a people that are rising up and up and up, and all they ever do is look down they better look up. And we better do the same in our lives. Let's continue on. Pride comes before destruction. Verses 5 through 9, if thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you've been destroyed. That's like an exclamation in the middle of this. It's like an excited exclamation. How you've been destroyed. And then continuing back with the thought, would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged. How his treasures sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom? an understanding out of Mount Esau. And your mighty men shall be dismayed. O Taman, that's, that's nothing from uh, the Lion King there. That's a different spelling. And, and so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off from slaughter. 
I want you to consider this people because we see the four pitfalls of pride right here. And may we all, may I be humble enough with the Lord's grace to avoid these pitfalls. You remember the first one? It was their habitation, those rocks in which they lived. So the stuff they've got, that was the first pitfall of pride way back up in verse 3. Continue on, look at verse 7. It's the people they know, their allies, their companions, their friends. The people they know, my company, my relationships. Pitfall of pride if we're not careful. Next, look at verse 8. The things they think they know. Their so-called wisdom and knowledge. Pitfall number three. And then pitfall number four, verse nine. Their physical strength and might. Their physical selves. Those four pitfalls, one or more of them can get us all. The stuff we got, the people we know, the things we think we know, and our physicality. Don't let the same thing happen to you. If you look, one thing that stands out about this text, too, is there's a difference between man and God. Can you see that? I hope you do. Do you see the, the things mentioned in 5 and 6? About when people, how, when people do things, even bad guys, when, ba- when, when people do things, it's just so incomplete imperfect, lacking. Like when guys go to gather grapes, even they're going to leave some leftovers. They're not going to get every single piece because that's just how people do it. But when God does it, it's perfect. It is complete. And there is nothing lacking. And that is true in a destruction sense. You better believe. Look at the end of verse 9 where he's clear. Every one of you, every man will be cut off to slaughter. This is going to be a complete obliteration and annihilation by God because it's not man doing it imperfect, incomplete. It's God doing it. Now, I want to take that idea for a moment in a destruction sense. And let's use it for good in a salvation sense. Why are we only baptized once? We pray a whole bunch of times in our lives. Hopefully, we fast over and over and over again. We give over and over and over again. And, and we, we, we even, you want to, you know, out there, others might call a sacrament, the Lord's Supper, Lord's Supper, that sacrament, as they call it, over and over and over again, repetitively. Why? Why do we do all those things over and over again, but we're only baptized once? May I offer to you that all that other stuff, that stuff, man, women, we are doing. We're doing those works. 
we're the ones giving, we're the ones praying, communing, having to go through those things. But I would offer we're only baptized once because the one doing the work there is someone who gets the work done completely and fully. And that there's no need for it to be done a second time, a third time, a fourth time, because the one doing the work is the one who gets it right the first time, every time. You see, when I think about baptism, if I can just for a moment, I equate my role in getting baptized to that woman who had that ailment, who went up and touched the garment of Jesus. She's not going around and saying, Woo, I got healed today, baby, because I did the work. I touched the garment of Jesus. She's saying, I was healed by his power, the work he did in my life. I want you guys to understand something. It's true in a destructive sense, but it's true in a salvation sense. And I want you to think about the sins of your life that occurred before that baptism took place. I want you to think about that as you walk in the light, that if God is doing the work, if Jesus has died and has been raised from the, the dead, he's been offered once, as the Hebrew writer would say, as a sacrifice for sins, then that's something we don't have to do every, every single time over and over again. The work has been done. It is completed. It is full. That's the way our God does things. Back to Obadiah. Without further ado, thank you for that five-minute tangent. I appreciate that. Thank you all. Verse 10. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. There's that complete work again. On the day you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat. I want you to listen to do not end the day over and over again. You ready? Do not end the day. But do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. Do not miss verse 10. What makes this so horrid and atrocious is Esau, your great-great-great-great-great-great-granddad, was the brother of Jacob. And Jacob's people, they are Judah. They are the ones who dwell in the city of Jerusalem, and they are the people you're wronging. You're wronging your own brother. And that just screams from the text. And not only are they your brother, they are my people. God is saying, and so we can expect him to avenge his people. I want to hit rewind as we go through this text, and I want you to notice this progression, if we can call it that, of sin, and how sad it is. Look with me at verse 14. Where it ends up being is they literally hand over, turn over their brethren people 
to the bad guys. They betray him. That's the worst that it gets. And as you go from 14 back, I want you to notice what happens. They, they loot the city. They get some of the, the gold and things from Jerusalem. They rejoice. They boast in Judah's calamity and the bad things that are happening to them. But as we, we, we go backwards further and further and further, we finally get to the beginning. What started it all? And I want you to notice in verse 11 what that is. On the day you stood aloof. That's funny language. It means it all started because you did nothing. You didn't do right when you could have. You just stood there. Jesus tells a story in Luke chapter 10. And you might read that story and you might think that the bad guys, the real bad guys are the robbers who, who beat and rob a man nearly to death. But instead, he presents that the real bad guys, the one in whom he expected more were a priest and a Levite who did nothing, who passed by on the other side. <laughs> Some of us were just like the verse 11 Edomites. And I hate to tell you this, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but it only takes time and opportunity and a lack of immediate consequences for you to progress, slide down that slippery slope into 12 and to 13 and to 14. Beware, you who do nothing. Continue with me, verses 15 through 18. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. But in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape. And it shall be holy, and the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Let's unravel this. This is how we're going to close, looking at these verses, and then the message will be yours. I, I, I just love the end there. Do you hear that at the end of verse 18? This is the way it's going to be. For the Lord has spoken. Verse 16. Verse 16. You drunk on the holy mountain in revelry, in feasting, in your wretchedness. Well, God says, yeah, I got a cup for you you're going to drink. You're going to drink the cup of my wrath. And you're going to drink and you're going to be full and you're going to swallow it down. And it's going to wipe you out. That's, that's the, the, the vibe we get as we read verse 16. Verse 17, but what of God's chosen people? He'll take care of them. They will escape. They are his holy people. Verse 18 
God will use his people to be an avenging fire. And indeed, when you look at the history of the Edomites, Judah, the Jews, played a a pretty key role in their extinction just before the time of Jesus, 100-200 B.C. They shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. And what's left of Esau and other nations that God is judging, that's what we get in 19 to 21. What you have goes to others. What you have goes to others. Let me close out verse 15. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it shall be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, overflowing, we poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it'll be measured back to you. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. And in the case of the Edomites, what they did came back on their own heads. And the same Jesus himself teaches, Luke 6, 37 and 38, will be true of us. The day of the Lord is on all nations. Right here, right now, it is near. And so this evening, if you've been standing aloof for too long, then this might be the time to humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and come to Him to do the healing work that no one else, not even yourself, can do. If you need to commit your life to Jesus Christ this evening, if there's any way we can serve you, who cares about what's later tonight, your soul matters more, come now as together.